This is loudspeaker. Please don't go. I need you so. I. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the podcast about finding joy through feminism and living your best feminist life. It has been a heavy season. As is often the case for podcasters, the topics that I've covered on this show tend to mirror the topics that I feel are most relevant in my own life and things that I'm thinking about or worrying obsessively about, things that I'm using my feminist lens to make meaning of, or just to learn more about so I can find my footing in terms of how to talk about them or take action regarding these issues that I care about. If you've been listening all season, you know that the very first episode of season four back in the fall was about racism and recovery. And this is a topic that has definitely been getting more daylight during the pandemic, and particularly since the racial justice protests of last summer. It's also something I think we would be remiss to move on from too quickly, because it is a huge issue, and also Making recovery spaces more equitable isn't just about racism. It's a space where the realities of intersectionality can be seen very clearly, as we'll learn from today's guest. I recently met her on Clubhouse, and I wanted to interview her immediately because she is also a podcaster, and I love talking to other podcasters, and because I love talking to other people in recovery. That has been a really important part of my own recovery. Plus, when I found out that her podcast was called Getting Your Shit Together, I knew I had to talk to her because women who cuss loudly and publicly tend to be my favorite people, and I knew that you all would enjoy her too. So please enjoy my conversation with Cynthia Wright. Cynthia, thank you so much for being on Feminist Hot Dog. It's You are my first clubhouse to instagram to podcast friends i've only been on clubhouse for a very short amount of time but i'm so delighted that we were able to make this happen i'm delighted too and that's awesome i'm glad i'm your first clubhouse to instagram to podcast friend (laughs) so i'm curious to know if you've been spending a lot of time on clubhouse these days, really? Oh, gosh, no. I actually had to take a step back from Clubhouse because there's just so much. Same. I could literally spend like ev- all day in rooms, like get up and start like my morning routine and then my morning affirmations and then jump into rooms and rooms. And so it was just all a lot. And I do a lot of other things outside of just the recovery space too. So it was just easily could eat up so much of my day. So I said, okay, let me just take a step back and breathe and enjoy my real life or in my in-person life because it was just social media and the clubhouse on top of that. It was just a lot. Yes, I can definitely relate to that. That was pretty much my arc. It was like, oh, what's this? What's this? And then giant spike where I was on it all the time and I didn't talk to my partner for like two weeks. And then now it's sort of like back down here again, but I still like knowing it's there. Yeah. I mean, I was on there today, actually, because I was listening to some writing panels and things like that and listening in as I was working. So, I mean, it's helpful, but it's just like, I have to, you just have to manage it, which is, you know, not always fun, but just like anything, find your, find your moderation. Yes. (laughs) 
unless it's alcohol in which case probably no moderation which is no, which is no. part of what also what brought us together because you are sober as as am i and w- which we'll get to that in a little bit but to start off with do you mind just telling us a little bit about you and where you grew up and your life story in a nutshell well I'm, well, Cynthia, I was saying like, I'm Cynthia, but you already said my name, but I'm a military brat. I'm queer. I grew up, I was born in Georgia. So I'm like a Southern peach, a Southern baby, but grew up all over. My dad was in the military. I lived in all up and down the East coast, a little stint in the central time zone, spent some time in Germany as well. So I was very, I love anything around new or different and different people, different experiences. Like I've always been into that since I was younger. My dad got off the military in Maryland. So I kind of grew up there for the most part, stayed through undergrad and decided I, I, I mean, I hated Maryland from the moment I got there and I wanted to come to New York, but my dad convinced me to try a smallish town. So I went to Atlanta and stayed there for five years and should have left after two but then I decided to be impulsive and I sold everything within a month and moved to New York so I didn't know anybody didn't really have much money I was like well I'm gonna have to make it happen and I've been here I guess going on 10 years wow so yeah I've been here for a bit sounds like you're making it happen 10 years yes yes I made it happen long as I've been in one place. So that's about like when it comes to just like where I've been, I work full time. I'm, I work in advertising. I live in Brooklyn, New York with my partner and um, I have a dog now and uh, I'm a writer. So I also do writing on the side. So that kind of led me down this foray into like everything creative and expression. I do photography and everything. And I was always kind of burning the candle at both ends. And I still kind of do. You know, I'm not going to lie. I'm just a very naturally curious person and I like to enjoy life now. Really enjoy it instead of just like, you know, coding my way through it with whatever I was using at the time. But I also got wrapped into like this, like I'm impulsive, which hence like me moving to New York the way that I did. I'm also, I can't moderate. Hence when we're talking about the clubhouse and everything like that. And I had a lot of things that I was running from my entire life, which is probably why I never settled in a place for too long, why I was always itching to not really lay down roots. I was kind of just like moving from place to place. And I was thinking about my next step, next step, which kind of led me into like my addiction. A lot of it. I actually, I don't know if people, some people don't agree with addictive personalities and some people do, but I consider myself that I have one and I've had one probably since I can remember. I've always been trying to alter my reality in some kind of way. Like I love creativity and I would always find my worlds and world building and things that I used to do, like wrapping myself up in all these other types of things. But there's also a darker side when it came to like my weight. And so I had like an eating disorder when I was like in fourth grade. Um, I struggled with that off and on. I mean, and I'm not going to even say like I've ever truly even now say like I'm cured from it. I don't really think that is something. It's just something that I learned to be realistic Mm. about and be accountable for that type of thinking and that kind of black and white thinking kind of really just amped up when it came to like my drinking. Like I tried a lot of different things, smoking. I tried other types of drugs, all those other types of stuff. I was a late drinker. I didn't start drinking until I was like 19 or something like that. And then I found it and then I was like, wow, this is exactly 
you know, what I've been missing all my life. Cause I'm a very, like I've talked fast. I think fast. I'm always moving. I'm always thinking about other things. And it's like, it's very overwhelming. I internalize everything. I didn't really know how to talk about my feelings or what was going on with me just because of how I was raised. Cause I'm like, I'm black. Well, I, I don't even say like I'm black. Cause I feel like a lot of families have it, but like my black, my family's black, Southern religious. There's a lot of, my dad comes from the military background. There wasn't a lot of talking about feelings and being different and everything like that. It was very much about being a certain kind of way, checking up, sitting in a certain kind of box. And then I was like antithesis of that. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. I didn't feel like I fit in my family. You know, I thought I was adopted for a while. So even though I look exactly like my dad and my mom, so who's not being realistic about maybe, anything. Maybe some I, wishful thinking there. <laughs> that wishful thinking, perhaps, even though I love Love my dad, love my brother and everything now. But so when I got my mitts or got my hooks into alcohol, I was like, man, this is like the first time that my mind slowed down. I wasn't so self-conscious. I didn't feel like I was clawing out of my skin. I could take the joke. I could be that per funny person. I could be what I thought was myself, like truly myself. And I kind of leaned on it for like years and years and years. And Looking back on it now, I kind of took jobs and took things where alcohol wasn't like necessarily a big like whoa taboo. I just thought I was going through like creative like careers and things like that. And then looking back, it's like, okay, Cynthia, let's just be honest about all this stuff. There's like a there's a hidden type of motive, even though if you you would like to act like it wasn't something there. So I was going through that. I moved a lot around, I moved from Atlanta to New York. I was engaged and that broke up. So I realized about myself that I, I, I've gone through these periods of running from things. Like I was a big runner and I always thought that I was a person that stayed. I would stay and fight for the relationship, stay and fight for the job, stay, stay, stay and fight for the friendship. But the reason why I felt I could stay or felt that I was able to stay is because I was burying so much of what I thought and what I wanted and what I felt or what I thought I deserved in alcohol. Like I just would drink it all away. I would feel nothing. I would be in like these relationships that were so toxic. And I'm not even saying like I wasn't a toxic person in, in certain aspects because I was, you know, and I own that. But I was like, I would use the alcohol as a way to kind of cope with that, cope with because I'd rather be with someone than be alone. Or I thought that's what I deserved. Or I thought that's what all relationships were like because my parents' one was all jacked up, you know. So I would just use, I would just keep drinking and drinking and drinking. And then I worked in these, in these industries where drinking was just normal. You could like an advertising, for example, I've been in that one, the longest drinking is very normalized here. You could drink at your desk. You could have alcohol at your desk. You could have, you know, I would open up my drawer at my desk and there'd be like a little mini like boost cart in a way of all of these different types of alcohol mixers. You could go have a look at lunch. You could have the happy hours. You could have whatever, you know, as long as you got your work done, they didn't care. And so I took things like that and I worked really hard and I would just keep drinking and keep drinking and keep drinking and keep drinking and keep drinking. It became like my life. Like basically I would work and then I would go and get drunk every day. And at first I was like, well, I'm out and I'm being social, so that's fine. And then I would start drinking by myself. And I would drink all weekend. And then I would, you wouldn't see me until like Monday. And that's me going to work and I'm hungover, you know, and I would drink during lunch. So it was like, you know, it was like this whole cycle. And I just realized that I, it all came to head because it's like, I was going through stuff with a, a relationship. I was going through stuff with my, my own personal health. 
And then my doctor was like, what the heck are you doing? Well, she said it in a different way, but she was basically saying like, get your, you need to get your act together. And then you need to learn to be accountable to yourself. And like, since you can't be accountable to yourself, you're going to be accountable to me. And I was like, okay. I didn't really buy into that at first. Cause I was like, eh, whatever. Do you think she could tell just from examining you or were you talking to her about what you were doing? I- I was, she's like one of these people that she was just really, she's like a dope doctor. Like I, I like, I like her. I still go to her and she just says it like it is. And I appreciate people that will say it like it is. Like, I don't have to guess. It's like, you know, even if I don't want to hear it and I'm like, Oh, like F you type of thing. Like I respect you for at least being saying your truth and speaking it and owning it and stuff like that. So I would talk to her about what I was doing. And even though I had a therapist at the time and she would be like, you need to really talk about your alcohol. And I'm like, I'm fine. I would push it off. I would push it off with her. You know, because I was like, whatever, this is what you're here to do. Talk to me about things. But I really just want to like complain about work. That's all I really want to do here. I don't want to talk about anything else about me. And and then the doctor, then that came on right on the heels of me going to a Christmas party and like showing out like nobody's business, making out with people, falling down, destroying things, blanking out. Cause I decided to drink like two bottles of wine and then go to a party and start drinking like tequila, you know, there. And I just remember waking up, I had like, no, I don't know if what I can and cannot say on your show, but. So you can say whatever you want. Oh, okay, cool. I had like no underwear on. I just remember making out with this guy. I, I didn't have my phone. I still had my keys in my hand and I was just sitting there like, what? And I woke up and I just still, I hurt everywhere. Like I just hurt. And then I was And I sat up and I was like dark in my room. And I was just like, what the hell, Cynthia? Like, what are you doing? Like, what are you keep, you keep doing this and you're expecting like, you know, that definition of insanity, like everybody says. And I was like, and it just sat there in the darkness. And I was like, like, this is where you are again. You keep going lower and lower and lower and lower. And it's either like you either have to come to terms with the fact that if you don't change now, you never will. And be okay with going down that path and that you're just going to be a a shit show or you're going to have to stop because you're not happy. Like, and I was talking to myself, right? Which I never did at the time. I never talked to myself like in any kind of way like that. And then I said something and I always tell people like something came over me. I don't know what it was, but I just said like, you know, I have to learn to love myself, you know, even though I don't know how. Like I, and I just kept saying that to myself, like over and over and I was crying and I was just going through all this stuff until I went back to sleep. Like I just was so tired that I went back to sleep. And then that day, the next day I was like, I'm done. Like I have to do something and really try something different than I've currently been doing because it's not getting me any type of result. I'm still miserable. I'm still not feeling fulfilled. I still don't know who I am. So I decided to actually do like a sober January and see how my body felt, which I didn't like to be like that cliche, but I was like, you know, I'm going to do it. And it'd be the easiest way for me to do it without a lot of people asking me a lot of questions. So I started there and then knew I was going to go past it, but I didn't put a limit on myself because I didn't want to obsess about it. And then I just kind of just went on from there and it wasn't my first sober January. I did one before and that was like the longest month of my life. And like, as soon as the first hit, I like broke it and went crazy and, and then ended up exactly where I was, you know, like a year or two later. And then this time I was like, you know what, I'm not going to focus on the days. I'm going to focus on trying this different things. 
and different things that were foreign to me and get my mind out of the pattern of fixating on the date and that I have to get to this date. And then that means that I'm a success. So yeah, it was a whole new world and my life changed a lot just based off, even within the 31 days, like, you know, it was like, it's the drop in a bucket, really. I mean, I'm still, I'm like, what, over two years in, I'm like, still this drop in a bucket, but I just learned so much about myself and what I was capable of, or, start, or I started to learn that about myself, I should say. So I love that phrase that came to you. I have to learn to love myself, even though I don't know how. Some people would say God, some people would say your higher self. Like there's so, so many different ways that you could characterize that message. What are some of the things that you've done to facilitate that learning for yourself in the two years since you quit drinking? Gosh, well, I took therapy seriously. I was one of those people that just went because I thought that's at your age, that's what you do. You're as a responsible adult that you go to therapy but I was just going and not really addressing a lot of my, the trauma or a lot of my stuff underneath. I would just talk about work and how I was mad about so-and-so at work, but anything involving like my parents or how I was raised, I'd be like, nope, we're not doing that. Or I would deflect, you know? So I said, I was going to commit to really going to therapy. I decided in January that I didn't want any distractions when it came to like romance or anything. So I took myself off the dating market because I was like, I'm just totally going to go at this alone. I have my friends, but I'm really, and even then I was like, I need to spend time with me. I just really need to spend time with me outside of my friends, outside of my relationship, romantic relationships. I just have to take a step back and figure out me because I realized going into it that I didn't know who I was. I mean, I was in my thirties, late thirties really. And I, was, I didn't have no idea, no clue what I wanted, no clue what I thought I deserved, no clue about where my goals or my dreams or ambitions are. Like I had nothing, you know, I was like an empty shell. And I was like, well, you know what? I, it's now my time to figure that out. So like I said, I took the 31 days and I did a lot of new things. Like I went to the gym, of course, but I also did a lot of writing and a lot of reading and doing like the freehand journaling, doing like my creative writing because I was blocked for such a long time there. Um, but I read a lot of books about like self-compassion and I read a great book about self-compassion that I always talk about and I gifted it by Kristen Neff, like saved my life really and gave me a whole new toolkit to really be able to understand myself and how I relate to other people and how um, they relate to me and how I talk to myself and how that impacts like my relationships across the board, you know? So that helps me a lot. I read like the body keeps the score. I mean, I read a lot of things that's just about like trauma and it wasn't pleasant reading all the time, but I read those books and I did the exercises and I put pen to paper. I didn't type it out and I just committed to it. Like, I think a lot of it was just me truly committing and just saying, I'm gonna try different things that would make me uncomfortable, that would make me roll my eyes, that make me be like, forget all this, I'm leaving. You know, you don't know me, you know, I'm fine. You know, <laughs> like all this stuff that would automatically put me on the defense. I said, you know what, I'm gonna embrace it and just see. And even if I come out the other side and be like, you know what, that still wasn't for me, but at least I could say I tried it instead of just automatically throwing up the wall and just going on. I was very honest about like my, I had my two really, my two best friends. I told them what was up. So they knew what was going on with me, but I kept, you know, I just put in the work and I didn't really go into like AA or anything like that. I did go to AA and I did try it out, but I didn't do that until like five or six months in. 
So a lot of that was just like reading the books and doing the exercise, doing the work, taking time, talking to my therapist about it and taking each day for what it was and not expecting that it had to be a certain way and just being okay with me not knowing everything. I think that was the biggest thing. It was just really having to humble myself. Like I had to humble my ass, like nobody's business because, you know, I was like, hello, I live, I live in New York and I on my own and I have this job and I'm accomplished in this way. But emotionally I was like a kid, like I was a kid and that's putting it nicely. I didn't know anything. I couldn't articulate nothing and boundaries. I read books about boundaries and I just took that time. And I credit that with being able to really help me set up a good foundation. And then I went through some rough patches and then I actually ended up telling my father everything which was unexpected because like my dad doesn't drink or anything, but I came clean to him and I just told him about everything. We talked about my childhood, the stuff with my mom, because I have a lot of stuff with my mom, but she's passed away. So I can't really take it up with her, but he stepped up, which I didn't expect my dad to do it. My dad's like EQ is like amazing. Like I feel bad for like selling him short. He showed up and showed out and I was like, okay, well I was wrong. I was wrong, but that helped our relationship, you know, and he's been very supportive. My brother is very supportive. And another thing I started to do was the podcast. You know, I started the podcast in August of that year just to get stuff out of my own head. I would go to meetings and like in Brooklyn, they're fairly diverse depending on where you go. But then I would be just scrolling through like Instagram or looking at articles and I would see people that didn't really look like me. And I would just be like, okay, well, why can't we talk about it within the Black community? I know it exists. I know other people like me out there. You know, I know people in my family, but it's like the stigma. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do something that is so against everything I stand for because I'm so private. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm just going to put all my shit messiness out there and get it out of my head. And even if I connect to one person, that's cool. You know, I just want someone else to not feel like they're going through it alone and they have to have it all together and packaged because another thing that I kind of buckle against or buck up against is like this need on social media for everything to look perfect all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's not life, yo. Like, that's not it. Like, sometimes it, it lines up perfectly. I'll, you know, celebrate that. I get it. Love it. But most of the time it's not. And I like cater to that. Like, the messiness, the like, you don't know what the hell's going on. I'm that person. And I just wanted to be honest about it and talk about it and give another perspective to what it means to be in recovery. Let's transition to talk about the podcast a little bit, actually, because that was I think how we first met was in a, I think in a podcasting room. Yeah. And in my internet stalking of you, I think I heard an interview where you said that podcasting had been a form of therapy for you. So can you talk a little bit more about that and just give us the elevator pitch about getting your shit together? And well, you've already covered why you started it, but how has that experience changed you in your journey? Um, yeah, it's definitely been a form of therapy. I think I think it's helped me in more ways than I could ever, ever quantify or explain. And it was something that I think because it was unexpected. I think it's helped me, helped me connect with a lot of people that felt similarly to me, you know, and it has nothing to do with them, whether they look like me or not. 
you know, I've had a lot of people just from like all of the world, surprisingly, which I'm like, yo, you're listening to me all the way over in like Thailand. That's awesome. You know, I don't know how you found me, but that's what's up. You know, how are you? <laughs> I've been there. I loved it. And people telling me their stories and connecting with people that way. So I've met people that I've, I've talked to people and we've had like deep conversations. I've never met them in person. I don't know if I'll ever meet them in person. I would like to one day, but they get me in a way through my show or talking to me and I get them too. So I think it's been just awesome. And I've opened up my mind to different ways of being in recovery and what recovery means for different people. And it's really just kept me like humbled and dialed in and present, you know, and not saying like everything has to be a certain way because I I'm a project manager by trade and I'm very, I can be very like, it has to be like this just because of how my mind goes. And this has really helped me just be like, you know what? you are not me. I am not you. So what works for me may not work for you or it may, it may, or it could change. It may work for you here. It may not. And it's like, that's helped me. It's been like such a gift for me just to meet different types of people, different ways of approaching things. I've learned as much from other people that have been on my show than anything. And I think I do it just because of for that. Like I, I've never thought about like, oh, this thing's going to get big or where's the next step. That's never been my plan. It's just been so helpful and beneficial for me to tap in and connect with people in a way that's kind of not about feeling guilty or shameful, even if that's where we may come into recovery or anything like that feeling, but just being honest about where we are, whether it's a great place or whether it's a very like shitty, messy place. You know, and I think oh, people that tell me they listen to the show, like I get this a lot, which is so interesting. It's, it's a big compliment to me. Like, I love it, but it's like, I feel, don't, don't be weird by this, but I know I've never met you and I probably never will meet you, but it feels like I've known you forever. And you say so many things that I understand and I totally get where you're coming from and thank you. And I'm like, and that to me is like what makes it worth it. You know, that's really beautiful. Yeah, it is really beautiful. And I'm like, and I'm always touched and I always respond to anyone who ever says anything to me on like Instagram or email or anywhere because I understand. And if you get what I'm saying, then you we're on the same page. Like I'm in there with you. And that's what I always say to people. Like I'm in there with you. Like it's not me. Like I'm up here and you're over here somewhere. Like I'm going through it with you too, you know? So I want, I always just want to aim for people not feeling so alone. Well, if- Feminist Hot Dog listeners wanted to check out the show. Are there specific episodes you would direct them to as kind of good on-ramps for getting your shit together? I mean, if you want to know me, I say listen to the intro because that's just me being quirky. But I would say one of my favorite episodes is, I have a couple, but I have one about self-compassion, which is a good one. I talk about, and then another one, I talk about the differences between guilt and shame and how they showed up for me. And I also talk about self-disrespect and how I learned that that's what I was doing and how I kind of keep myself in check about that. And since I guess the summer we're coming, going to spring and summer now, I have one about like sober summers and stuff like that. Like things that I did during my first summer when I was sober, what helped me. And I wish I think I've been telling people to listen to more because of the new normal and things are opening up now mm-hmm. for the people that have been sober, got sober during quarantine. Like, you know, it helped me a lot to 
kind of keep myself in check during my first year. People who got sober during quarantine are like superhuman as far as I'm concerned. I do not know yes. how they did that, but I'm so impressed. <laughs> Me too, but I'm sitting there thinking like, man, could I do that? Because I feel like Thank goodness that I got sober beforehand because if I didn't, it would have been a different, entirely different look for me last year. Yeah, man. Those people are made out of strong stuff. So just pulling the lens back a little bit, this show is very grounded in feminism and social justice topics. And I'm interested to hear from you what you think people should know about the intersectionality of being a Black, queer, sober woman and how those identities kind of set your experience apart from someone who might share one or two, but not all of those identities? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I noticed stuff like that when it came to meetings, when I was doing a lot of the 12 step meetings and things like that. Because when I first went in, I would go to like predominantly white ones because those are the ones that were near my job because I work in Midtown or I worked in Midtown at the time. And I would just feel like so out of place, like, okay, well, this feels weird. And you're supposed to like bear your soul and talk about what's going on with you and blah, blah, blah. And it was kind of hard for me to do that when I just like, what if I said something around like, well, you know, something with someone I was working with and it, they would identify more with them than me. And it was like this whole, like I would kind of go into my head and I just didn't feel like I could just feel safe and put it all out there. And then, but on the flip side, I would go to like the black, predominantly black ones are diverse ones in Brooklyn. And then I didn't feel like I could fit in there because of like being queer or, <laughs> or, or the fact that a lot of them seem more traditional to me. They were like older, like stuff like, you know, men do this, women do this. And mm. you should go to a women's meeting and talk about this. But I'm like, well, what if I don't want to? What if I want to talk about it here? Because I can't go to a women's meeting. <laughs> you know, It's like stuff like that. And not, and then not feeling like I could safely be like, well, with my partner or whomever, and like say like he or she, depending on who I was with, you know, like I didn't feel like I could just be fully authentically myself. I felt like I always had to like sacrifice a part of myself. And I think for me, when I got sober and I started dialing into me, like I didn't want to apologize for anything that made up like me. Yes, I swear. Okay. You know, you don't, you don't have to, but I do. And I'm queer and I want to talk about it when it comes to like my partner and the rights and everything that we go through and I don't want it to be like well that's not what we do or take it to a women's meeting and it's like I didn't want any of that so much of my life I had to play in these these boxes for people for them to feel comfortable for them to be like okay I can accept you but they weren't really accepting me they were accepting this idea of me that fit in this box and then for me I was like fuck that I want it to be me, authentically me. And it's like, I'm not hurting anybody. Like I'm not here. I'm just wanting to be myself. And I should be able to feel safe in that. Especially when I'm trying to talk about something so personal to me, we should relate on the, like what I'm trying to talk about, like the issue, because we all have this problem or not even problem, but we all are going through the same type of journey based off this, but you're so hung up on the particulars, which it has nothing to do with you. So it was hard for me to feel like I could commit to it like a hundred percent because of that. So I, now I don't really subscribe to like a 12 step model or anything, but I still go to groups and still go to meetings of different things. But that's just because I need to feel like a hundred percent safe across the board, not in just certain parts of my identity. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's something that, you know, I've done a few recovery episodes sort of here and there scattered throughout the various seasons of Feminist Hot Dog. And this is an issue that's being raised more and more and more. And, you know, within 12 steps, I really think that this is something that's getting a lot of attention and a lot of pushback too, because I know like I've raised it in some settings where I got like smacked down so quickly as, you know, you're being disrespectful or you don't know what you're talking about, or you're going to hurt people by like driving them away from AA and all this stuff. And it's like, I think we're allowed to criticize our institutions. I feel pretty strongly about that actually. And because essentially if you're protecting the institution that only works for a certain percentage of people, then what message are you sending to everybody else who's not being served by that institution? So, so yeah, I appreciate you sharing your, your experience. Yeah. It's like a form of segregation and almost in a way, because it's like you refuse to see that there's a problem because it's working for you, but like you may fit the demographic for what, like, you know, when this was started, you may fit that demographic. So yeah, more than likely it could, you feel comfortable in it, but maybe you never have to think about like, if something's different from you, because your demographic, maybe what is considered, I wouldn't say normal, but you know, times that I've had to voice myself in rooms, it was like older white men or, and then by, and then in contrast, interesting enough, it was like older black men as well. But it's like, they feel like this thing about like it needs to be a certain way because it works for them in a certain mm-hmm. way so mm-hmm. therefore it would work for you if you stop questioning it and just do the do the work and do the steps and just and I'm like but it's not jiving with me dude like it's not you know I don't like this I don't feel right about it I don't like the language and I don't feel like I need to abide by what you feel is safe for you. Like, I'm not you, you're not me. We all are coming to this with different backgrounds and backstories and trauma. And it's like, no one wants to, to, to acknowledge that. But I'm like, you hiding it and saying like, that's not what we're here for. I think that's what alienates people because they're feeling like they're not seen or heard in any kind of way. And it's like, how do you expect people to come here and want to be like honest about where they are if they can't really be honest about it? And you not take it personally. They're not talking necessarily directly at you. People internalize it. And then it becomes everybody's issue. Are sobriety and social justice linked for you in other ways? I don't hide my sobriety. Like, I don't hide it. And I don't try to downplay it. I don't try to say, like, that's not something that isn't a part of me. I also talk about like you know everything that's happened especially last year and all the stuff that was coming through for and even now even with everything that's happening with like the Asian community and everything like that but it's like I I think for me if it wasn't if I wasn't sober I think I wouldn't have been be dialed in at all I wouldn't be dialed in I wouldn't feel like I I have a voice or I can make an impact or I can do something but I know that for me it's helped me just really step into my power and my truth really and also help people find what works for them too you know because I've had people reach out to me like well I don't know if I feel like I should do this or say that and I'm like yo whose life are you leaving leading you know 
Like, is it yours or is it someone else's? Are you going to hurt somebody by saying this? But I think it's really helped me step into my power in that sense and helped me connect with other people that are also on the same wavelength and to be able to do things and not be afraid and not back down. So I think I credit sobriety to that for me because otherwise then I would just be living under a rock or in my bed for the most part. How would you like to see the sober community better show up for racial and gender justice? Just like being open and not feeling like it's us versus them all the time, you know, and just because someone is challenging your way of thinking does not necessarily mean you're a bad person. I know for me, I knew people like when all the black and brown spaces were popping up last year during COVID that some white people that I knew kind of adjacent were really upset and offended by that. And I asked them like, why? And they couldn't really give me an answer for it. And I always thought that was just such a peculiar thing and come to find out it wasn't, but that's like, to me, is like you're emotionally reacting to something instead of questioning why a certain subset of people or a population felt the need to create those types of spaces. And it's like, it's not a personal attack. But these spaces sprung up because a lot of people that looked like me or black and brown or like, you know, LGBTQ or everything felt like they weren't getting what they needed in certain other spaces. They took it upon themselves to do it on their own. And I just, I kind of want people to be able to look at it from that lens, less of like personal, like me and less about, okay, it's about we, but like, how do we get there and how do we hear each other in a really true way? Like, I want people to really If you want to say it, then act on it and just really put your ego aside. Because I feel like a lot of this stuff is like people's egos are running crazy right now. And it's like, yo, check that because that's not going to get us anywhere. And no one's listening to each other. And really look at like these institutions, the things that we uphold and put up here and think is it best serving the world and the community as it stands now. Look at it critically and just be honest about it. And so I think that's just kind of where I am. I feel like when we get into this whole mindset of like, it needs to resemble this because this is what it should resemble to me because this is what works for me or what makes me feel safe, then you just count and discredit so many other different viewpoints and ways to learn and ways to grow. And then you become stunted and archaic and like, how are you really even helping yourself at that point? Well, let's talk about how people can follow you and support your work? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. I don't really, I mean, I'm on Clubhouse. You can, if you're on Clubhouse, by all means, follow me. I'll follow you back. My name is at Cynthia Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. I rarely ever get my full name on anything. So I was really excited that I got to get my full name, but uh, you can find me there. And then you can also find me on Instagram. I'm pretty active there at getting your ish together on Instagram. And then when it comes to my show, new episodes go out every Thursday, every two weeks or so. And you can find me on all streaming platforms or most of them at this point. There's always new ones coming up, but most of them, heavy ones, heavy hitters, I'm there. And then I also have a mailing list. So you can get that information on Instagram in my link tree if you'd like to join that. Beautiful. Well, thank you for being on my show. It is an honor and a privilege. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Cynthia, thank you so much for being on the show and telling us your story and about your podcast and just for sharing so much of yourself with the world right now. 
The connections and insights you offer through your show are such a necessary gift. And I want to thank all of you, as always, for spending this time with me today. It is an honor and a privilege to be invited into your ears, and I'm so grateful to you for listening, following, rating, reviewing, and spreading the word about Feminist Hot Dog. Our theme music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. As always, listeners, I hope you will love yourself and love your buns until we meet again. Goodbye. This is Loudspeaker.